Grace Through Faith, chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21. And uh, then uh, let me bring up a few just by way of review and, and background. The flow of Romans, we have the introduction, the prologue, uh, followed by the first major theme of the universal sin problem. And then the proposition follows that. Got a sin problem. And we have the proposition that justification is by faith alone. Major emphasis in 3, 21 through 31. And then uh, justification by faith alone illustrated in the life of Abraham. Chapter 4. Justification by faith alone applied to believers in Christ. 4, 23 through 25. And then justification by faith alone ushers in various spiritual blessings. Chapter 5, 1 through 11, which is where we are in our study. And what does it usher in? Well, note uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5 that we looked at last week. Uh, justification by faith ushers in peace with God. Uh, it ushers in access into a grace standing. And hope. Uh, the New Testament word hope means a certain expectation. Hope in the glory of God. Hope produced in the life. Hope does not disappoint. And hope sustained by God's love. Justified by faith in Romans 5.1 really drives the entire paragraph of Romans 5.1 through 11. Justification by faith ushers in a whole host of related spiritual blessings, which is what Paul in context is really dealing with. Well, having introduced the love of God in Romans 5.5, 5, which sustains biblical hope, Paul now builds on this love theme. We noted last time that for people of faith, there is a subjective, internal, spiritual heart reality related to the love of God. It is a spiritual reality ministered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But now as we continue on in our study, we see that this subjective internal spiritual reality of knowing God's love in our hearts is based on an outward objective reality as seen in the cross of Christ. The thing about the Christian faith is that it is not merely subjective, but also objective. Our faith is based on history and prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. So there is an internal spiritual reality, but this is based on concrete, objective, historical realities. Uh, note the emphasis on history. A man called Jesus, who claimed to be God, died. I mean, that's objective. That's factual. That's historical. Theology, uh, a man called Jesus is God who died for sin. But then salvation makes it personal. A man called Jesus is my God who died for my sin as my Savior. So note uh, the subjective reality. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. It's an internal subjective reality. But it's based on an objective reality. Romans 5, 6, in due time. Time is a historical reality. In time, in due time, Christ died. Happened in history. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love. 
Christ died. Again, his death, a historical reality. Well, having stated the subjective reality of the believer, knowing God's love in our heart, verse 5, Paul now turns to the historical demonstration of God's love as objectively seen in the death of Christ on the cross. Our subjective experience is based on objective reality. So we pick it up, Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still without strength means when we were spiritually helpless and powerless. We were in a bad place with no means to do anything about it. Nothing we can do gives us power to make ourselves right before God. Neither religion or religious rituals will help. Neither sacraments, baptism, or communion will get you there. Trying to live better won't help. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousnesses, all the right things that we do, are still like filthy rags before God. They, haven't, they don't move the ball forward at all. While we were in this helpless condition, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, in due time could be translated at the right time. And it is God who determines the timing. He's in charge of the prophetic calendar. This emphasizes the historicity of this event. It happened in time, in history, exactly according to what God has sovereignly determined. We read in Galatians chapter 4, lots of references we could go to here, but Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. But note, in the fullness of time, uh, when Jesus began his ministry, he said in, it says in Mark 1.15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's according to God's perfect timing. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed to the Father saying, Father, the hour has come. John 17.1. At each step of the way, we see God sovereignly controlling what was happening to Jesus according to his preordained plan and timing. At just the right time, according to God's time schedule, Christ died for, drum roll please, the ungodly. No, Christ did not die for the godly or for those who were working on self-reform. Uh, he died for the ungodly. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying, you can drive a stake down here, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came, to save sinners, of whom I am chief, uh, Paul says. Christ dying for the ungodly shows they have no merit, no merit. They have nothing to spiritually commend them to God. Ungodly refers to those who want nothing to do with God. They show no reverence for God. They were not morally neutral, but rather actively opposed to God. 
And left to ourselves, that's where we all are. Romans 3.10 says, no one seeks after God. Uh, we have all gone astray. Christ dying for the ungodly shows that God's love is unconditional. It was not dependent upon people being good. No one is good. As Paul says in Romans 3.12, there is none who does good, no, not one. All are unworthy, no exception. Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. And this is called grace. We don't deserve any favor at all. And yet Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly and helpless. In our ungodly condition, we were helpless to do anything about it. And in that state, Christ died for us. We had nothing to commend us and everything to condemn us. A footnote here. The description of being without strength really builds on the example of Abraham in chapter 4, who was completely impotent and unable to bring forth the promised child. All Abraham could do was believe God's promise. And when he did, God accounted it to him for righteousness. So here's where we were. Uh, you see my arrow here, right? Uh, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, and then we saw in Romans 4 or 5, to him who does not work, no works, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. He died for the ungodly, and when we put our faith in him, he accounts for the ungodly. His faith is accounted for, for righteousness. But note, this applies to the ungodly. In getting saved, we come as we are, ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly, and we come in faith as ungodly. And the instant we put our faith in Christ, God accounts us as righteous. Amazing. God saves the ungodly. There is no room for boasting. There is no holier than thou. This is simply justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now we talk about amazing grace. And that's right. But Paul here develops the idea of amazing grace as an expression of God's amazing love. Paul here shows the uniqueness, the greatness, and the security that is found in God's love. Verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Paul is here illustrating a point from ordinary life. Rarely would a person die for someone else. You know what? Life is precious. You only get one go around. We cling to life. When Satan was talking to God about Job, he said, and he's, I think, a student of, of human nature, and he said there, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. Job 2.4. That's normal. Rarely would someone volunteer to die for another person, even for a, a righteous person. Uh, humanly speaking. 
Yet perhaps there are exceptions. For, for a good man, there might occasionally be someone willing to die for them. But it's rare. And even when people in rare cases are willing to die for someone, usually it is for someone close to them, you know, a dear friend, a dear loved one, a spouse, a wife, a child, you know, maybe a fellow soldier. And that's remarkable. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That is the greatest expression. It's the greatest demonstration of human love. But God's love stands in stark contrast to even the greatest expression of human love. You see, Christ died for ungodly sinners who were his enemies. Who dies for their enemies? I mean, think about the person who hates you the worst. I know you don't hate anybody, so let's talk about the person who hates you the worst. I mean, your worst enemy. You say, well, I'm willing to die for that person. Eh, that's not normal. I mean, if that's really true, God has done a great work in you. This is the love of God. You say, well, I'm willing to die for my wife, my husband, my child. But what about your worst enemy? Are you willing to die for someone who detests you and hates you? That's a whole nother level. This is God's love, God's kind of love. And that's where he goes, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But is a contrast word. In contrast to mere human love, which on occasion might be willing to die for a righteous or a good person, is the love of God which dies for sinful rebels. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to clean up our lives. No, while we were still sinners, actively rebelling in our sinfulness, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. If you want to be saved, you have to come as a sinner. You have to humble yourself and admit, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved. And I have no basis, no merit, no grounds within myself for why God should love me. By the way, this was the problem with the religious Jews. You see, they were self-righteous. They didn't consider themselves to be lost sinners. You know, we knocked on somebody's door and they were so offended that we pointed out to them that they were sinners. And then the lady called me up and said, this just isn't right. How dare you? What gives you the right to call somebody? Say, well, you know, uh, we're just kind of the ambassadors here. We're just kind of the messengers here. You don't like the message, but it's come straight from God. Jesus said to uh, the Jews, the religious leaders, Matthew 9, 12 and 13, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. You don't need a doctor if you're well, Right? I remember my dad was sick one time. He had to go see a doctor, and they were supposed to have a follow-up appointment. The doctor, you know, called him where he says, where are you? And he says, well, I don't need you anymore. I'm feeling well. <laughs> uh, those that are well, they don't need a doctor. You say, well, annual checkups are good. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But you get the point. Those that are well, they do not need a physician. But those who are sick, 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Christ came for sinners. The righteous, they don't need Jesus to come. They don't need a Savior. Of course, there is no real righteous people, just self-righteous. God, in amazing grace, shows love to the unlovely. It's good for us to remember this. You know, the world out here is crazy, and they do crazy things and evil things, and it sometimes makes you very angry. But just remember, the world is doing what the world does. And, and what is God's response here? He loves the unlovely. Uh, the word sinner means one who misses the mark, one who comes short of God's holy standard. Now, on what basis do we experience the love of God in our hearts? Well, we have come to know the truth of how God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us in our ungodly, sinful position of enmity. For people of faith, this truth now grips our soul with joy and gratitude. The word demonstrates is the idea of proves, proves. God proved his love at the cross. Jesus' arms outstretched on the cross was really an expression of love, saying, in effect, I love you this much. Don't look at your emotions or your feelings. Look at the cross. This is proof positive of God's love. He loved us while we were still sinners. He died for the ungodly. The great issue is what will we do in response to his love? Will we reject it or will we receive it? God's love is a giving thing, a sacrificial giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3, 16. Galatians 2, 20 says of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The essence of being loving, God's kind of loving, is giving. Giving sacrificially. God loves sinners. The proof is seen in the fact that Christ died for sinners. He did not die for good people. Because, in fact, there are no good people. Uh, on the overhead here. Christ died for sinners, which means you qualify, right? You qualify. God loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. You say, well, I think it's just I'm such a lovable. No, 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 you're not. You're really not that lovable. I'm sorry. I I'm not either. Uh, it's not because of who we are. It's because of who he is. Well, how do you know God loves you? Well, because Jesus died for you. You say, I don't think I'm worthy. You're right about that. But the good news is Jesus didn't die for worthy people. He died for unworthy, ungodly people. And you qualify, and so do I. Charles Ryrie says, the extent of God's love is shown in the fact that Christ died for men in whom there was nothing that evoked that love. There's no, there's no reason he should love you, humanly speaking. That's called grace. It's totally unmerited favor. If it be asked, why did God do this? We must answer, because in his infinite love, he chose to do so. 
simply because of who he inherently is. There was no merit or good in us to call forth such love. You know, back in the Old Testament, the issue is brought out in Deuteronomy 7, that God chose Israel to be a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. And the reason given is simply this. Because the Lord loves you. Well, we're ready for the follow-up, right? Why? Why did he love them? The only explanation given is in that word, because. Because the Lord loves you. Why? Because. Because he chose to do so of his own sovereign will. Don't you love that? I remember even when I was a kid, and I remember my kids, they would ask me something, and, and I would say, because. That's always satisfying, isn't it? <laughs> why, 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 why? What's because of what? How about because God is God, and because he is sovereign, and because he chose to do so? This reality of God demonstrating his love toward us as ungodly sinners in the cross of Christ should cause us to worship and give thanks for the kind of God that he is. What kind of God is he? Well, 1 John is very clear. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This defines God. And we love him because he first loved us. Why did he love us? Well, because he wanted to. And because it's in keeping with his very nature, the kind of God that he is. A famous and learned theologian towards the end of his life was asked this question, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? He thought for a while and then he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It took lots of years of education to figure that out. But it is profoundly true. And, and the only thing I would add is, and he proved it by dying for me. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, there are four much more statements in Romans 5. Two are found here in verses 9 and 10. The language here moves from the greater to the lesser. This has been called a comparison of wonder, where one wonderful truth is immediately followed up by yet another wonderful truth. One wonderful truth is enveloped by yet an even greater wonderful truth. So there's more upon more wonderful truths to consider. The ground of our justification has been shown to be the blood of Christ, his death on the cross. To justify means to declare and treat as righteous. It's a judicial declaration, like a judge would make. God, as the judge of the universe, has ruled, and he has declared believers righteous. That is right. This is what God does for believers. They have been declared righteous. Now, note this package that's brought out in, in Romans. Being justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption, the buying back, what Christ did to purchase us, 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, justified freely by his grace. But then Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Romans 5.9, where we are, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So this is a package. We are justified by grace through faith with the basis of it all being the blood of Jesus. Note that for believers, justification is an already established fact. At the moment of faith, we are justified. A drawn-out process is not involved. Instantly, we go from the category of ungodly to justified, purely on the basis of grace through faith. But God, having done the heavy work, if you will, of having provided justification on the basis of Christ's blood, causes Paul to say, in light of that, we shall be saved. We shall, future tense, be saved from wrath through him. Having been justified, we now have the assurance that God will protect us from any and all aspects of his wrath in the future. Currently, God's wrath is on display towards those who have been given over to their sin, as we saw in Romans 1. God, in his wrath, lets them go. But believers will never face this reality. You know, God disciplines his children as a responsible heavenly father. But we, as his children, will never experience his wrath. The world is headed for a time of worldwide judgment. But the world is really blind to this reality. But we know it because the Bible tells us so. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. Acts 17, 30, 31. This, by the way, is what the book of Revelation is largely about in chapters 6 through 18. This is called the coming day of the Lord, which is a time of judgment in which God's wrath will be poured out on the whole world. Right now we are in a time of grace and God is inviting the world to repent, but judgment day is coming. Revelation chapter 6, when Christ begins to unseal uh, the judgments, Revelation 6, 16 and 17, the people are crying and they, they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of, the, face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? But we as God's people will be spared from this because Jesus has promised to take us out of the world before this happens. Uh, major emphasis in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Where are we at as believers? Well, we are waiting. The Thessalonians were saved to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. That's deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here is where we are as far as the biblical timeline of events. We are living in the church age. You know, often this is called the age of grace. Worldwide judgment has not happened yet. It's coming but it's not happening. The door of grace is open. The invitation has gone. Whosoever will can come. Come. Age of grace. 
But one of these days, the rapture is going to take place. Perhaps today, that'd be nice. I'd like to have it happen during a sermon, like when I'm making a major point like this. <laughs> uh, the rapture, uh, you know, we're going to be caught up and we're going to be saved from this time of wrath that will then come upon the entire world. Uh, the great tribulation, seven years of tribulation, the, the day of the Lord, the, day of, the time of wrath. And then, of course, we will come back with Christ as the bride of Christ at the second coming where Christ will set up his kingdom. First stage, 1,000 years, uh, then segues into the eternal state. And then there is the final judgment of unbelievers, which Paul calls the day of wrath in Romans 2.5. You see, unbelievers are storing up wrath against themselves. And at the great white throne judgment, the judgment of unbelievers, there they will be judged accordingly. They will all go to hell. But there are degrees of eternal punishment in hell. But here is the point. Jesus at the cross took all the punishment for sin. He took all the wrath of God for sin on the cross. He paid it all. This is where the word propitiation comes in. Propitiation means to satisfy or appease God's wrath. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. In Romans 3.25, Paul said that God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, which is appropriated through faith. What a wonderful word is this word, propitiation. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ satisfied the wrath of God for, for all of sin. Now you have to receive it. If you don't receive it, you're still accountable. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin. Send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Therefore, no wrath will ever be directed to God's people because on behalf of the believer, Christ has forever appeased God's wrath directed towards our sin. Having been justified, we are never in danger of experiencing the wrath of God in the future. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, most assuredly, I still like, the old King James here, verily, verily, truly, truly, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, present tense, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. That is judgment for sin, but has passed from death into life. There is therefore now no condemnation, none whatsoever, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only are we justified, that is declared righteous, but we are also saved from any threat of wrath in the future. You see, we're not looking at wrath in our future. Rather, we are in a position of grace. We're standing in grace. And in that position, we now rejoice in hope of the glory of God. For the unbeliever, they are headed for wrath. But we as believers are headed for glory. A footnote here. Uh, the Bible speaks of salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, past. We are currently being saved from the power of sin, present. 
And in the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. A little diagram here. I don't know if you can see it real well, but uh, past deliverance from the penalty of sin, justification. Present deliverance from the power of sin, that's, that's Romans 6. We'll get to that, 6 through 8. Uh, deliver. And, and you know, sometimes people want to confuse Romans 6 with what we have back here in terms of justification, but really we're talking about progressive sanctification, where little by little we are being changed in terms of our, our walk. Our position is settled. Uh, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are currently being delivered from the power of sin in our walk, but then in the future we will ultimately be delivered from the very presence of sin. That, that's glorification. So the three tenses. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 10 really makes the same essential point of security as verse 9, but with a slightly different nuance. As unbelievers, we were enemies of God. We were not on good terms. We were hostile towards God. We were rebel enemies. A person might not even think they're in this category, but if they're not saved in truth, in their hearts, they're rebel enemies of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So note the description of those who don't know the Lord. This fourfold description. Without strength ungodly, sinners, enemies. Before faith, this was our position before God. But now on the basis of faith, we have been reconciled to God through the death of his son. Jesus has made reconciliation with God possible. And he did it through his death on the cross. This is all Christ's doing. You say, well, I, I think I've made, uh, I'm working my way towards reconciling with God. I'm doing this. No, you don't do anything. Christ did it all. That's why we say it's a gospel of grace. Reconciled is the idea of going from a hostile relationship of enmity to now being one of friendship. We were on bad terms with God, but now as believers, we are on good terms. We've been reconciled. We have reconciled on the basis of the cross, which is the only basis a person can be reconciled to God. Provision has been made whereby reconciliation is possible. The only thing God asks is faith. We are justified by faith on the basis of Christ's blood. Note that as believers, we have been reconciled. It's already a done deal. The moment you place saving faith in Christ, instantly you are reconciled to God. This idea of having been reconciled is parallel with having been justified. In verse 9, justified is a legal term, while reconciliation is more a relational term. But both point to the idea that we are now right with God. As the judge, God has pronounced us righteous. As the Father, he has reconciled us and welcomed us home. Having been reconciled, Paul then says, on this basis, we shall be saved by his life. You say, well, I, I thought I already am saved. Yeah, you are. 
and, and you, are, you are going to be saved. You say, well, pastor, I'm confused. Well, that's why I'm here. <laughs> this is the other side of salvation. The future tense shall be saved. We are saved by what Christ did on the cross. But our security rests in the fact that his in his resurrection, he ever lives for us. You see, Christ's resurrection life means that Christ is always there representing us as our Savior. And if there's one great need you and I have as great ungodly sinners, it's a Savior. You say, well, I need a Savior for a while. You need a Savior forever. If for one single moment we did not have Christ representing us before God, we would instantly be lost forever. But as believers, we shall always remain in the position of saved because Jesus lives for us. Forever, he is our representative as our Savior. Hebrews 7.22, 7.25, Therefore, he is also able to save. To, to, to what extent? To the uttermost, to the furthest. Those who come to God through him, how is it possible? Well, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You say, is that necessary? Oh, yeah. Do you realize the devil never gives up trying to get you back? You realize that? He still has limited access to heaven. And whenever you mess up, guess what he does? He flits off to heaven to accuse you and make his case that you should be damned because of it. And you know, apart from Jesus, he would have a strong case. Revelation 12.10 says, he accuses us before our God day and night. Wow, has access to and he's accusing us. Look at Pastor Dwight, look, 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 look. He should not only not be in the ministry, he should go to hell. The devil knows that if Jesus for one second was not there as our advocate, we would instantly be lost. But praise God, Jesus died for our sins and it was satisfactory. And then on the other side of the coin, he ever lives to defend us and stand for us so that no charges against us will ever stick. In this way, we are saved both by the death of Christ and by his life. John says it this way, 1 John chapter 2, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and we do, we have an advocate, we have a defense lawyer, we have someone standing there for us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Being justified by his blood, we face no future wrath. Being reconciled, we are saved and kept secure forever by Christ's resurrection life. Indeed, Christ is a living Savior. There is a very close parallel between being justified and being reconciled. Uh, note I put it up on the screen there. Justified by his blood shall be saved. Reconciled through the death of his son shall be saved. 
You see, Paul is still building on the truth of God's love and showing how the love of God, known by the believer, brings with it security. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the spirit of truth, ministering God's truth, the truth of his love to our hearts. Andrew Bonar said, Jesus died, and Jesus lives. These are the truths that contain everything for us. All that a dying and living Savior can do is ours. Alva McLean, so if it is the death of Christ that wipes out all our sins and gives us justification and righteousness in the sight of God, it is his life that keeps us safe forever. Indeed, that is true. Now, we're jumping ahead just a little bit in chapter 8. Who is he who condemns? Rhetorical question. It is Christ who died. He, he's not condemning us. He died for us. And furthermore, is also risen. And at, in that position of, of risen, who is even at the right hand, hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's always there defending us. I mean, you're, you're never... You're never going to get away from that reality for all eternity. Our justification was secured by the death of Christ. Our preservation is secured by his unending life. Thus, the death and the resurrection life of Christ constitute the full gospel. And this full gospel means everything to us. So here's our position as believers. We, having been justified by his blood, shall be saved from wrath. As enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of Christ shall be saved, that is, preserved by his life. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, the, the argument of these two verses, Romans 5, 9, and 10, I suggest is the most powerful argument with respect to assurance of salvation or the finality of our salvation that can be found anywhere in the whole of Scripture. Powerful. Let no one try to be reconciled to God through good works, Prayers, sacraments, dedication, or whatever efforts, religious or otherwise, we were reconciled to God while being his enemies through the death of his son. That alone is the basis of reconciliation. If as an enemy, God has reconciled us on the basis of faith alone, then surely as his friend, we are now forever safe through his resurrection life. If in death he saved us, he surely will not lose us in life. The two sides of reconciliation, uh, the divine side provision made. Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 2 Corinthians 5.19 that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Divine side, provision made. Let's talk about the human side. Faith response. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How does that happen? Justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's how you come into a reconciled relationship with God. You respond in faith. Verse 11, 
And not only that, he's continuing to build, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not only are we justified and reconciled, saved from wrath and saved for all eternity by the unending life of Christ, but we also rejoice in God. Our position as believers causes us to rejoice in what God has done. This is so good as to be incredible beyond what we can comprehend. But in the wonder of it all, we rejoice. The word rejoice is the same word used back in verse 2 and 3, sometimes translated as boast or glory. It is, the it is the idea of exultant rejoicing with great enthusiasm. What a transformation. We have gone from being ungodly sinners who were the enemies of God to now rejoicing in God. We celebrate and glory in what God has done in reconciling us to himself. And we will never get over it. For all eternity, the celebration will roll on. We are trophies of grace. We're giving God all the glory, and we rejoice. We exult in that reality. And it has only been made possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator between God and men who gave himself a ransom. He is the one mediator that brings us to a right relationship with God. And Paul consistently says for the believer, he is our Lord Jesus Christ. Consistently we see this refrain. And this is really what we're talking about. Lord literally means God master when used of the risen Lord. Jesus means God savior. Christ means anointed or chosen one, this is who he is to us. He's our God master, our God savior, the one who fulfills prophecy as the chosen one. We owe everything to our Lord Jesus Christ through whom our salvation was made possible. It is through him that we have now received the reconciliation. Note the double emphasis here in verse 10 and 11 that the reconciliation is a completed and done deal for us as believers. Having been reconciled, so it's a reality, have now received the reconciliation. This is where we are. We are not hoping it will come to pass or somehow be worked out. No, it's already an established reality. At the moment of faith, on the basis of Christ's death, we have been reconciled to God. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, we find that on the basis of faith, we have these key realities that are now in place. We have peace with God. We have access and a standing in grace. We have received reconciliation. In this section of Romans 3, 21 through 521, where we're studying, we also have four key theological terms related to our salvation. These are key important terms. Justification, meaning to be declared righteous. Redemption, to free by paying a price. Propitiation, to appease or satisfy God's wrath. Reconciliation, to be restored to a harmonious relationship. This is what applies to all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's all based on Jesus and personally appropriated by faith. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, there really is a triple emphasis on rejoicing as well. 
The future, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's a lot of rejoicing here. In the present, we rejoice even in tribulations, knowing that God is at work through them to build our character. And past, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's a completed, done reality. So we celebrate our relationship with God. We celebrate what he has done to reconcile us to himself. We rejoice in what he is currently doing to build our character. And we rejoice in the hope of future glory. John Wesley was the famous evangelist uh, who led a revival movement in the 1700s and really spearheaded the development of the Methodist movement, which started out good. He wrote many hymns, and some we still sing even today. In celebration of his conversion, he wrote the song, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? It has the refrain, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Elizabeth Ritchie was at John Wesley's bedside in his final hours, and she wrote down uh, firsthand testimony of what happened. And she wrote there, finding we could not understand what he said, he paused a little, and then with all the remaining strength he had, he cried out, The best of all, God is with us. And then lifting up his dying arm in token of victory and raising his feeble voice with a holy triumph, again repeated the heart-reviving words, the best of all, God is with us. How wonderful that the death and life of our Lord Jesus Christ forever assures us that for all eternity, we as believers have been reconciled to God. Indeed, the best of all is God is with us. Let's stand and sing our concluding hymn. Love lifted me when nothing 
else could help. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Souls in danger look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. Souls in desert of the sea, billows his will obey. He your Savior wants to be, be saved today. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me, love lifted me. Just did it for an hour, but anyway, we'd love to share with you. If you want prayer, if we can counsel you, help you in any way, we're here. Lord, again, we thank you for your amazing love. Defies anything that we know in human experience to die for one's enemies. You demonstrate, you proved it. Lord, now it pulsates in our hearts as true believers, and we rejoice in this grace standing in the hope that we have of the glory which is yet future, the glory of God that we will share in. Amazing grace, amazing love. Lord, we certainly just want to say thank you. Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. Lord, we, we rejoice. We celebrate the reconciliation. Uh, we can't say thank you enough. We can't imagine what, as we are on the cusp of eternity, what it will be like. Thank you for who you are, a God of love, a God of mercy and grace. Lord, a God of invitation, whosoever will can come. The ungodly are invited. Sinners, your enemies. Lord, we all come on that basis. That's, that's who we are. We're only on the other side by, by grace, through faith. Lord, have your way in, in every heart. If anyone's listening, they have not yet called on the name of the Lord in faith. I pray that even now you would work in their hearts. They would come to Jesus, respond to him. Receive him by faith for who he is as a Savior who died for all of our sins, as, as Lord over all who rose again the third day. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We do celebrate your coming into this world. It is a faithful saying that you, you came to, to seek and to save the lost. You came to save sinners. And we celebrate that wonderful reality as, as your people. Lord, we look forward to the program tonight. Pray for your blessing on that time together, the time of fellowship. Uh, just uh, give us a good rest of the day now and uh, continue to use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see you tonight.